<laughs> the only one on this show. Aaron, thank you very much. <laughs> the best to you and the family right. for the weekend. I am Chris Cuomo, and welcome to Primetime. As we enter into the Memorial Day weekend to honor those who died for this country, where are we? We see a country that is really struggling with any degree of commitment to fight what our leaders all call a war against this pandemic. The virus is making a resurgence, and our president, instead of dealing with what he says is a war, seems intent to divide us in some distraction of some kind of holy war, ordering churches open. Look, the law is clear. Trump has zero power to override governors on reopening houses of worship. No governor wants to keep churches or any place of worship closed. We have a governor tonight from his own party who strongly advised against filling places of prayer. So why did the president make the call to want this this way? What power does he have? What does he think this will do for the rest of us? Now, more importantly, why aren't we focusing on what he should be doing for the rest of us? Where is the testing? Where is the tracing? Where is the effort that he puts into the division about going to church, about making a plan to fight this virus? We're still waiting as we head into this holiday of remembrance of those who made the ultimate sacrifice. We have to ask ourselves, are we really fighting this war as best we can? Let's get after it. You're either on the side of liquor stores or God. This president laid out a ludicrously false choice today. Some governors have deemed liquor stores and abortion clinics as essential, but have left out churches and other houses of worship. It's not right. So I'm correcting this injustice and calling houses of worship essential. I call upon governors to allow our churches and places of worship to open right now. Forget about whether or not he has the right. Is his saying it that way even right to do? When's the last time you saw him coming out of services, by the way? So why is it so important to him now? I wonder if it has anything to do with the politics of division. Basic questions or would have kept our places of worship closed. You heard it. If you're a Catholic, you heard it from the Catholic churches uh, themselves. We got to find out the safest way to do this. They discouraged us from going early on. They encouraged tele-services. Why? Because that's the safe way to worship. This president seized on an opportunity to wrap himself in the cloak of righteousness. It's familiar territory for a man who once told me he gets audited so much, maybe because he's such a Christian. So rather than stay and answer questions, he left it to Kaylee, I shall never tell a lie, McEnany, to paint any who question this situation as anti-God. Listen to this. Boy, it's interesting to be in a room that desperately wants to seem to see these churches and houses of worship stay no, closed. Kaylee, I object to that. I mean, I go to church. I'm dying to go back to church. The question that we're asking you and would like to have asked the president and Dr. Burks is, is it safe? Now, she went into backup mode, but you see the game they're playing. They don't want to focus on what they need to do, but boy, will they distract you with the ugliest, most divisive things. Really? Accusing people who ask you about safety measures of being anti-God, who want churches to stay closed? Is that where we are now? Look, here are the facts. Trump simply can't order churches open, and he shouldn't be doing it anyway because that is trying to make this about religion. 
And look, the true faith that we should have right now and is in one another to do what we need to do to keep ourselves and one another safe. He didn't put the rules in place to keep anybody safe, and he doesn't get to decide when to lift them, period. It doesn't matter how many times he stands up and says, I'll just override this or I'll defund that. He doesn't have the power. The governors do. I will override the governors. I can override it if I want. Well, I have the ultimate authority. He says it, and he's never been right. The government's ability to enforce generally applicable prohibitions of socially harmful conduct, like its ability to carry out other aspects of public policy, cannot depend on measuring the effects of a governmental action on a religious objector's spiritual development. What does that mean? It means you can't prevent houses of worship from doing what a comparable secular business does. Okay, it means that you got to let them all do the same things as organizations. So that means if you want to close down businesses, then you can close down the churches the same way. But you can't just do it to the churches if you're not doing it to anybody else. It shows how much time this president actually spends in a church pew if he thinks that liquor stores or abortion clinics are comparable to houses of worship in any way, let alone under the eyes of the law. What Scalia, Antonin Scalia, may he rest in peace, what he was staying there, no liberal, right? is as long as it's the same, it's okay. Now, while we're at it, a hardware store, a restaurant serving takeout, a theater, those places you'd have to treat. If you treat them one way, then you can treat houses of worship that way. But they're still closed in most places. Why? Science. So if anything, you see places of worship getting a deference that other businesses are not. We've seen example after example after example. Okay, worshipers are doing exactly what this president is demanding, only to have it end in death. All right, God is not going to protect protect you from making stupid choices. It's not how it works. Okay, it's not how faith works. It's not how the practice of faith works. And most importantly, it shouldn't be how America works. We do not have the time. We do not have the strength to be tearing each other down and creating a dividing line on the basis of faith and who is anti-God? What self-respecting Christian would even try to draw that line, which is anathema to Jesus's message? I give Trump a break. He is not a man of faith. You have no indication that he's living his faith. You've never even seen him walk out of a service. But those around him wear their crucifixes and say that their faith is the most important thing. They should do the same thing that all us sinners need to do. Live your faith. Most of us have it because we are trying to deal with our flaws. We believe in something bigger than ourselves because we need to. And we reflect that belief and the respect for the same by how we live our lives. Don't use it as a weapon. Use it as a tool to make yourself better, not to divide people. Don't be ugly. Not on that level. Not now. As you enter Memorial Day weekend. And we need to be reminding each other of what sacrifice looks like. A true holy act. They gave their lives. We're not even willing to wear masks. Just so you understand how this works, one pastor whose family shared their heartbreak about this, who said, I believe God will protect us. We should all meet. He didn't know the truth of the virus. He wasn't getting good information. Cost him his life. You remember this? It's been very difficult to be able to grieve or even think about um, all that this means for our new normal because we're all trying to just heal and we have kids and and try to stay strong for our kids. So 
I, you know, to I really don't know. Uh, it's just been almost like a daydream. I criticize no man or woman for taking risks to practice their faith, to believe in it. I get it. For many of the faithful, that risk is a, sometimes a function of their faith. And that pastor took precautions. One that sounds a lot like the new guidelines that just came out of the CDC. Things like maintaining social distancing, making sure people with symptoms stay home or at least encouraging them to do it. Not sharing things like religious books. For Catholics, you know, there's no wine right now in terms of the blood and wine, the transubstantiation uh, rite that is so important to us. No hugging or handshakes. My favorite part of Mass is the sign of peace. Can't do it. Another example of where we've seen those same rules being followed. A community choir in Washington state did all that back in early March. Four days later, 45 of the 60 choir members were infected. Two died. So is this really about making it okay, being fair, rewarding people of faith? No, it's about division and politics. White Christians are not the majority in America, yet religion is a big factor for your huge chunk of Republican voters. And that's what this is about for Trump. And if you don't want to believe that, fine, give me a better reason. Show me what it's about for him. Show me that it is consistent with anything that he's done around faith or anything else. It is telling how the faithful are responding to this bullhorn from the BS bully pulpit. The Southern Baptist Convention is pleased while the Council on American Islamic Relations slammed the idea. This president knows he doesn't have the power to follow through on this any more than he can take away money that Congress has already allocated because he doesn't like the way a state is using it. He also knows that everything I'm saying right now doesn't mean a damn to his base, just like it didn't when he threatened governors with liberating their states and said that the people who went up and spit and yelled in the faces of police were good people. Or just this week when he puffed up his chest to make a stink about mail-in voting. He knows that it's all about being a demagogue. Don't waste the time with slapping the level, the label of being prejudiced or a bigot on this president. The truth is, it's not worth the time. You're not going to change minds on that basis. And you know what? He is arguably something worse. A bigot, prejudice, what is that usually about? Ignorance. People who were raised a certain way, don't know any better, aren't educated, or maybe they're just plain evil. But what's worse than that? Someone who knows that it's not true, but they know that it's powerful. And they know that if you use it, you'll play on someone's animus and prejudice and outrage, and they will follow you. That is called a demagogue. And that is what we have to beware today with BS like what we saw today. Now, the president is making an assumption that the governors want to keep you away from the pews. Not only is that not the status in a lot of states, they're already open. They just have to follow certain guidelines, just like other businesses. But governors from both parties feel the same way about it. Republican Governor Mike DeWine from Ohio. Governor, it's good to see you. Um, may the legacy of any of your loved ones who died in service to this country be remembered. Uh, and I thank your family for their service and sacrifice. Places of worship are open in Ohio. They follow the guidelines that you put forward for doing it safely, right? Well, you know, Chris, what we did, let me, let me just first uh, start by saying my dad was in World War 
two, I know. Uh, both my grandfathers in World War One, and uh, Fran's uncle died in, in Korea. So, you know, this is an important weekend uh, for this country, Memorial Day, and it's it's appropriate that you remembered and that we all remember. And, so, I, re- so and I, knew, I knew about your about family's that. involvement and sacrifice and the generational commitment, and that's why I brought it up to you. And there are many Thank families you. like yours in this country, and it is a solemn occasion. And we appreciate it very, very much. So this is not is news me. for you. Trump's not talking to you. Places of worship are open in your state. Uh, but you didn't do it as a religious move. Uh, you did it as a balanced move of how you want people to come together safely. Well, actually, actually, Chris, what we did, um, we exempted uh, religious services, funerals, weddings uh, from our any orders. But we also, of course, were very careful and said, uh, you know, please be very, very careful. And we recommended that, you know, churches um, you know, try to do it virtually and do it other ways. And we had some amazing, uh, some pastors and uh, rabbis and it, people just did some amazing things. You know, they, they did use the telecommunication sure. today. Some did literally kind of drive in church, uh, you know, the old drive in theater. They actually used a, a drive in movie theater to do it. So people have been really, I think, uh, very, very responsible and how they've done it. And you're starting to see now, uh, the Catholic Church, for example, has announced that they will be starting to go back, but it's it's starting to open the churches again. But it's important that people be careful before. It's important that they be very careful now. As you know, I've talked about this, as we are opening up, mm-hmm. uh, the danger is, is certainly very much out there. And, you know, we want people to be very careful. Do the, do the distancing. If you're sick, don't go to church. If you're older, you know, you might think about maybe not going and right. watching on TV or, you know, we, we have a, a Catholic priest friend of ours uh, we work with down in Haiti, Father Tom Hagen, and he's been doing masses. And we've had people from all over the country who are his friends and who have worked with him who, who go in and we, 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 you know, participate in the mass and feel like we're participating at least. So Tom Hagen, he's uh, a passionist, people, isn't he? He, no, no, he's an oblate. Uh, he's down in <laughs> Port-au-Prince. He is. He he's in Port-au-Prince, uh, Haiti. Great, um, great I know him from uh, <laughs> our coverage in Haiti uh, and the generosity of Catholic charities and obviously uh, Father Hagen. And of course, I'm joking because of the affiliation with the Passionists uh, down there and the Passionists do their own it. television mass. Look, you know, as the priest said at the last mass that I went to before uh, they stopped having the services, is he said, you don't need me to tell you that you're your brother's keeper. It's part of our faith. Uh, You're supposed to do what is in the interest of keeping those in safe around you. That's how you show the love of mercy, which, of course, was Jesus's main message. So people of faith should be the last person you have to have this discussion with. And I appreciate you talking about um, how it shouldn't be a political issue. Now, what is a political issue is how you deal with the vulnerable in your state. Uh, Nursing homes are not a unique problem for Ohio. Every state that's been hit Their nursing homes and elder care is the hot zone, is the ground zero. It started in Washington state. Uh, We saw the first place that we saw an outbreak where it was a meaningful cluster was an elder care facility. True with your state as well. 68% of total coronavirus deaths in Ohio are from long-term facilities, from COVID-19, okay? Uh, So you have a unique way to deal with the testing because it's too hard. Too many people to test. It's too hard to test that often. You brought in the National Guard. 
A little bit of a risky move, a little bit of a risky move whenever you bring in the National Guard. Why was it the right move? We wanted to move and we finally, Chris, have reached a point where we don't have enough tests, but our testing capacity is up significantly. We're up to about, the capacity is about 18,000. Uh, we're now getting about 9,000 actual tests. One day we got 10,000, but we wanna push that up. But we just kind of looked at this and said, you know, where can we save the most lives? And as you just pointed out, the, the, the gut-wrenching statistics of how many people you know, have died in our nursing homes. So we're really trying to do two things. One is you're trying to slow the community spread, get that one-to-one -one ratio, which is what we have now, one person infecting somebody else. We were at one point at two-to-one. We've got it to one-to-one, -one, but we got to keep it at least there. So working in the communities is very important, but we also want to go in to the nursing homes, and we've got a plan to do that. We're gonna really kick that in hard uh, next week, and we're gonna be testing um, the, the staff uh, because we think that's that's a good place to start. We're also gonna let the clinicians and the doctors, when they go into that nursing home, make the decision how many of the, how many, how many of the, the folks who live there uh, should be tested as well. We're gonna start, we've had 350 nursing homes that have test have a history, you know, sometime in the last two months of having COVID in there. So we're going to start with those 350, uh, and then we're going to expand from there. So this is probably going to take us a month uh, to get all the all the way through. But um, uh, General Harris, who heads up our National Guard, has been great. Uh, he has 14 teams that are that are ready to go. We're also working with local hospitals. Uh, each hospital in the state. Uh, hospitals have taken over a nursing home. So every nursing home has a, has a hospital that is their partner. And so they're going to partner with us in regard to these tests as well. So it's, it's trying to go where we are the most vulnerable and where we think we can save the most lives. Right. And it's not easy. Um, people are scared. They're dissatisfied. They say it took too long. That's part of being in leadership uh, in a state that's dealing with COVID-19. Uh, we are watching your efforts. Uh, and look, unlike the federal level, at least every time you're making a move, you are spending a lot of time figuring out how to do it safely and explaining that to your population. Governor Mike DeWine, you will always have a platform on this show to do exactly that. Thanks, Chris. All right. Be Thank well. you very much. God be bless and the best Thank for you. this weekend. All right. And our hope is, look, this weekend, I mean, hopefully the meaning of the weekend motivates us all to do what we can do and enjoy doing as safely as possible. We got to honor sacrifice and commitment this weekend. What better way to do it than taking care of what you do with yourself and others? Now, more science tonight. Listen, the president has put something out there that is gaining in popularity and it has to be vetted and the science is not there. There is no magic pill. Listen. If things don't go as uh, planned, it's not going to kill anybody. What do you have to lose? Take it. What you'll lose is the argument if you say what the president said in the face of anybody who knows science. Some patients could lose their lives by being treated with hydroxychloroquine. Now, is that a counter political argument? No. It is one of the understandings from the largest study to date on its effects. We have one of the lead researchers. This person has every reason to want the drug to work. That's why they test it. What is the reality? Next.
The largest study to date of its kind shows that hydroxychloroquine does more bad than good for coronavirus patients. Now, the president is not saying that, but the president does not know what he's talking about when it comes to science. What he is doing is making you believe that COVID is not that bad. There's a pill you can take that will help you. You don't really need a mask. The death tolls aren't what they thought they'd be. This is all part of a pitch. He believes the longer we stay closed, the worse it is for him. So COVID's got to go. Science and facts be damned. The new findings published in the Lancet Medical Journal span across nearly 700 hospitals, six continents, and 15,000 patients. Okay? Now, the president claims to be on the drug. Now, I don't like that, and it has nothing to do with politics. We have one president, and we need him to be at his best. Dr. Burks of the White House Task Force responded to the study this way. I think the FDA has been very clear on their website about their concerns about hydroxychloroquine, particularly when it's combined with amaculite. And I think you see that in the study. There are still controlled trials going on, both for um, prophylaxis and pre-exposure prophylaxis, as well as controlled trials looking at, in a hospital setting, how these drugs do. And I think those are still pending. But I hope everyone looks at those comorbidities. All right, now look, it seems to me that she's trying to tamp this down, all right? And I understand she's in a tough position. Let's bring in Dr. Uh, Suppin Desai. He is one of the lead researchers of the study. Thank you for being on primetime. Help me uh, describe everything you're about to say as if you were talking to a seven-year-old, <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> this gets really confusing really yeah. fast. Even what Dr. Burks just said. Um, I followed her through. There's still studies going on, so let's not rush to judgment. And I hope they're looking at comorbidity, which we've become a little acquainted with, meaning that they were already sick and probably going to die anyway. Um, what is your sense about what people should do where this drug is involved based on the research? Yeah, <clears throat> Chris, first of all, thanks for having me here tonight. Let's keep it simple. I, I, I'll pretend like I'm talking to one of my kids. I, the message here is that COVID-19 is a deadly illness. We haven't seen anything like this in 100 years since the 1918 flu, which killed 50 million people. Now, these are desperate times. People are scared. They're looking for solutions. And chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, especially when you combine them with a macrolide, the risk of death goes up. What's the a macrolide? The risk of potentially fatal um, antibiotics, uh, things like azithromycin. And uh, the issue there is that the risk of fatal cardiac arrhythmias uh, a, a rhythm in the heart that could kill you, that risk goes up as well. The risk of death goes up by almost twofold for some of these combinations. So if you take and, it alone, uh, are you good? Like we haven't heard that the president has taken a Z-Pack or anything like that. So if you're just taking hydroxychloroquine, do you have nothing to lose? Well, I would, I would really hesitate to say that. So first for our study, this was done in hospitalized patients. And as you mentioned earlier, the largest study of its kind done to date on COVID-19 and especially for chloroquine. And what we can tell you with, again, it's an observational study, but what we can tell you to a certain degree of certainty is that if you're taking chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, plus or minus an antibiotic in the hospital, it doesn't have the impact that we think it does. That's because they're too sick and they were gonna die anyway. So if you take it the way the president does, which is before you have symptoms, it may keep you from getting too sick or sick at all. Is there any basis for what I just said? 
Yeah, so great, great point. So this is the 21st century. And I'd like to think that we live in a data-driven world. And that's, that's exactly the approach we've taken for this kind of a study. This is the difference between the pandemic today and the pandemic we had 100 years ago. And I think before we start making claims on medications that work or don't work, let science do its job. Let data drive this discussion. Is there any data that suggests that taking it before you're sick will keep you from getting sick? Not yet. We need the same kind of rigor, that high bar that we were able to reach with this study in the Lancet, the bar that we reached a few weeks ago in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's, that's the kind of evidence that needs to be generated before we can start saying one way or another whether a medication works or doesn't work. Last question that has nothing to do with science, but probably has more to do with whether people believe anything you say than anything else that we could offer them. Um, you and I have both heard, doctor, People say that they took this and it helped and that they know people who took it and helped and that people don't want hydroxychloroquine to work because they want COVID to keep going. And that's people like you spinning data to make people not do things that'll get us past COVID sooner. How do you answer that allegation? Yeah, it's a great, great point. And I would say, don't take my word for this. Go to the literature, go to science. Look at the study. There were 96,000 patients across six continents that participate in this study. And the numbers are black and white, they don't lie. And so we did a, a pretty advanced statistical analysis where we looked at all of these different patients and sliced and diced this a dozen different ways. We ended up with the same results. Chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, for someone who's in the hospital with COVID-19, probably not the next best step for that patient. Doctor, the best for you and your family this Memorial Day weekend. Thank you for explaining this to us in a way we can understand. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. And listen, you know, you always pick your forums for news the way you want. When I was sick, I would try anything, okay? If I hadn't been warned off this drug, and if I hadn't had a number of different clinicians, many of whom, by the way, support the president, saying, I, it's, I just don't know that it's going to help you, so it's not worth the risk. Let's try these other things. I would have tried it too, okay? I would have taken anything. I don't even know what I was taking. I was desperate. I get the desperation. I just don't want to see anybody do anything that's going to hurt themselves. That's it, okay? First court appearance today for the third suspect arrested in the Arbery murder case. Prosecutors believe the man who recorded the killing was in on it, William Roddy Bryan. They will have the burden of proof, of course, but Bryan's lawyer is now trying to paint him as a victim. How? Analysis is widening, so is the investigation, so is what we understand. Next. Uh, very quickly, thank you so much for all the messages. Yes, I'm sweaty. No, I'm not sick. Thank you. Bless you for asking me. It's very nice. It's just hot in the room. They're lowering it. I, I cannot thank you guys enough for how much you've looked after me and how much you're concerned about me and my family. Thank you. I hear you and I appreciate you. And it drives me in a way that I never thought I'd be driven before to do this job as well as I can for you. Now, part of that is talking about this situation in Georgia. William Roddy Bryan Jr. He's the guy who recorded the awful video of the shooting of Ahmaud Arbery. You know, really, probably the key piece of evidence in the case against the men accused of murdering Arbery. He made Roddy his first appearance in court today. You see him right there. Murder charges. Felony murder, also accused of criminal intent to commit false imprisonment. What does that mean? That means that what the McMichaels said in the initial statement that Roddy tried to head off Ahmad Arbery with his car, 
That's what that speaks to. His attorney maintains he committed no crime and bears no criminal responsibility. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which took Brian into custody, pushed him back hard. Listen. I can tell you that if we believed he was a witness, we wouldn't have arrested him. You know, so there's probable cause and we're comfortable with that. Joey Jackson is here. Uh, We invited Mr. Brian's attorney on again. The invitation is open. He declined. Joey, thank you very much for being with us. First, is the GBI telling the truth? If they think somebody is a witness but has nothing to do with the crime, do they never arrest those people? Well, that's generally how it's supposed to work, Chris. Good evening to you. And, you know, they don't appear to have a dog in the fight. The reason the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigations, was brought in in the first instance is because they're not local to the case. You remember the recusal of three separate district attorneys before we are where we are now. And ultimately, people have to have faith in the process. And so an outside entity investigating is a good step. As to your question, I think that'll be left for a court of law. But they believe that there's probable cause to believe reason to believe that he was involved other than being a mere bystander that just recorded the tape. And so in the event that that's true, and he did try to detain Ahmad Arbery against his will and otherwise actively participated and aided and abetted, then he'll be held accountable. And this was the first step with respect to announcing the charges, having him appear in court, and then a trial will be next. Bad facts and circumstances for Roddy. One is they mentioned him, uh, the McMichaels, the two accused uh, people in this case, or two of the three now, um, mention him there and say that he was part of it. Bad fact for him. Uh, the second is that McMichael released the video that Roddy took, but Roddy and his lawyer, through his lawyer, said he didn't know them. If you don't know them, how'd they get your video? Bad facts. But felony murder charge. How do you charge the guy who took the video with felony murder when he wasn't in on the shooting, as far as we know? Well, you don't have to be in on the shooting. So let's be clear about something. What happens is under our law, a person who aids, abets, encourages, and others is otherwise involved is equally as responsible as the person who pulled the trigger. And so you know the classic example, Chris, from your legal background. If you're robbing a bank and you're outside and you're just looking in the getaway car and watching the neighborhood, somebody else robs the bank, they shoot and kill someone, you're responsible. And I think that's the argument here. And so let's be clear just about a couple of things. Number one, people are wondering, I'm sure, what's felony murder? What's that all about? Well, in the event that someone dies while you're committing a felony, even if you don't want or mean them to die, it's felony murder. So now the next question, Chris, is, well, what's the felony? Well, you know, we all have the freedom of movement. So if you're trying to detain me against my will, that's false imprisonment. That's an underlying felony. Someone died as a result of your behavior. The warrant describes that he apparently, that's Roddy, right, Brian, was blocking Aubrey in for 20 minutes trying to detain him. False imprisonment felony. He died. Hence, felony murder. Joey, uh, from what you understand at this point, what do you still need to know? And what, from what you know, lead you to what types of suggestions of what this case will pivot on? So I think there's a number of things. I think we have to make clear that the defense certainly will argue that mere presence is not enough. Everyone should know and understand that you can videotape something that occurs. If a crime is in progress, that's not a crime. You could videotape it. You could look at it. You can determine what what happened. However, 
in the event that you go beyond videotaping and you know. So what do we know in this case? Whether or not he knew the McMichaels, that's something I want to know. What was the nature of that relationship? Did they make a plan to do anything as it related to Ahmaud Arbery? Was he asked to participate with respect to blocking Ahmaud Arbery in? Did he engage in and otherwise participate in the blocking of him in? And to the extent that he might have been involved in that, and what was the course of conduct over how long a period of time? What specifically did he do? Those are the questions that are going to get him in the event that he's guilty, convicted. If he's merely present, it will not. However, if he actively participated, he's in a world of hurt. The wider implication of what the GBI seems uh, to think it has in this case against the two principal defendants. Here's a hint. We have accumulated a number of pieces of video in the case. I'm not going to speak specifically about what we took from him, uh, uh, but uh, eventually that will come out in a court of law. But suffice it to say, there are a number of pieces of video that helped us get to this point. Now, I don't think they're talking about the surveillance videos. Um, I think they're talking about what we've heard from the beginning, which is there's more video than just the one we've seen of the incident. Is that what you take from that statement? And what might they be looking for in other pieces of video? So to be clear, first, as it relates to video, there might be many out there saying, well, wait a second, if it wasn't for him coming up with this video, would we be in that place? That's true. true. But you don't true. get brownie points as a result of engaging in a crime and then producing a video which otherwise establishes the crime. That's number one. Number two, on the issue of what they're looking for in the other pieces of video, they may demonstrate when this all began. What was Roddy Bryan specifically doing? How many times did he block him in? What was his interaction, if any, with Lamar Aubrey? Was he trying to detain him, and if so, how? What was his interaction with the McMichaels? How long was he following behind him? All of these things could be answered by videotapes. Chris, we are in a technological world, and so we know the video that we see. How many other people were looking, and there, and there are other videos. In addition to that, people have these home systems of surveillance. How many of those videos will play into the fact and the facts are that we want to know who was doing what and when, who participated and how, and that will get you ultimately to a conviction in the event that you were guilty in pursuing Ahmaud Arbery and otherwise the circumstances and facts that led to his death. Joey Jackson, well argued as always. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Always. Appreciate My next it. guest got to stay in the court environment here. She's leveling a lot of allegations about the COVID fight in Florida. The former State Department of Health official is claiming she lost her job after being asked to manipulate data used in Florida's plan to lift stay-at-home orders. Governor Ron DeSantis has been very public in his criticism of her. She is here to make her case. An exclusive interview next. Florida's governor and state health officials are condemning accusations that they tried to censor public health data on COVID-19. The controversy was ignited by claims and emails from a state health employee named Rebecca Jones. She's going to join us in a moment. Jones says, Jones says she spearheaded the launch of Florida's COVID-19 data portal. She says she was fired after she was, quote, asked to manipulate, delete, and hide data, and refused to do so. Jones provided CNN an email she sent to her former colleagues on May 15th that reads in part, my office is no longer managing the COVID dashboard. I would not expect the new team to continue the same level of accessibility and trans." 
transparency. Uh, this, of course, was dynamite for the situation. Rebecca Jones joins us now. Thank you for taking the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Do me two favors. One, let's keep it out of the weeds because this data stuff gets dense really fast. And let's name okay. no names because I have not had the chance to get responses from all the different players. All right. So to be fair. Understood. Okay. So the simple question is, what exactly were you asked to do that was so in unusual and improper and, in your opinion, wrong? Well, the first time I was asked to do something improper was in April. And when I brought basically what the results of whether or not each county could open to superiors, they essentially told me they did not like the results. How the so? Results did what does not that match. mean they didn't like? Help us understand. The results didn't match the report for reopening that had already been written, uh, basically saying that a lot of rural counties, because of a, a wide range of reasons, didn't meet the criteria that the state had outlined in order to qualify for reopening, whereas some more populated counties did meet that criteria. And I was told that specifically, and this is a quote, we can't tell Jackson and Franklin County that they can't reopen, but Broward and Miami-Dade can. Okay. And so let's so stop there I've, for a second, Rebecca, just so we give it to people in chunks, okay? Um, okay. All right. So what they say is, no, 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 no. This was just about dates and different ways of organizing data. We do this all the time. It wasn't about hiding anything because uh, everything came out. And in fact, it's still available now. So if the data is available, we never wanted it deleted or hidden. So we did nothing improper. Why are they wrong? They're lying because asking me to delete data and hide information and make it publicly inaccessible was a bad decision. It was a wrong decision that I stated very clearly in several email communications that I still have. I did not agree with. I actually referred to it as being the wrong call. We had really built our reputation in Florida and made my dashboard famous across the whole country and even the world because we were transparent and we were honest about what our data was and what it meant. If there was an issue with the data integrity, they would have never put it back. But they did as soon as they started to get calls saying, why is it the same day that the press asked you about this information? Do you decide to delete it and pull all the information down from the website? So wait, so they're and making then, the opposite course, argument, just to make it clear. They're saying we never deleted it. So that's how we were able to put it back. That's why it's still there. They disagree with you with why it was put back. Uh, they say it wasn't because the media was asking. They were just organizing the data differently. And they have a hundred very deep reasons that I don't get. Uh, and neither will anybody else. But they say it was never deleted. So we never asked you to delete it or you just decided not to delete it because it was never deleted. So we're OK. It was absolutely deleted. And, and it's public record that it was deleted. The data did go down. It broke all of the links um, across our Department of Emergency Management website, our own Department of Health website, as soon as it went down. I have the email records ordering me to take it down. Um, as I said, I replied, this is the wrong call, and then immediately pried after that, that it was down, and that was it. About an hour later, I was told to put some of the data back, but not all of it. And the next day, I was told to return all of the data in the exact same form that it had been published the day before that and for weeks before that period of time. 
So when you say deleted, it was something you were still able to recall. And that winds up uh, being one of the points of discrepancy. So now their second point of pushback yes. is, by the way, we had nothing to hide because we're doing great. We're ahead of Georgia. We're ahead of Texas. Uh, our numbers are out there. DeSantis was late to the game in terms of opening back up. So we weren't trying to force anything. We were, we were late in reopening and we're doing better than everybody else. And the numbers show it. So why would we hide them? We do. We are doing well. Uh, we are doing much better than a lot of other states and certainly a lot better than people expected Florida to do, considering that we had spring break open and, you know, as you said, we're late to the game. And that is something that I've defended and championed for the governor and our health department the entire time I was working on this project was how well we were doing. Um, but now it's impossible to know how reliable that data is because they changed the way the data is calculated. They changed how they record the data and how they publish it. And data continues to go missing from the website when the uh, dashboard now crashes all the time. How do you know? Uh, so explain this to us as non-statistician, non-quantitative people. One, uh, how, do you, how can you explain that they are doing data in the wrong way, which is a deceptive way? Um, and um, how can you prove that they do it for bad faith and not just a good faith dispute about how to process the data? So when I offered good faith statistical methods to account for rural counties, um, because a yes or no, this county meets this criteria is a little strict. I offered to do a couple of different statistical methods. You know, my background is in climatology, averaging things out with variability to distinguish trends is kind of our, you know, bread and butter. And they said no. They said they were going to exempt counties with a population of less than 75,000 entirely from the criteria that would be applied to every other county. Um, and then they decided to change the way that they calculated the number of positive or the percent positive of people um, and changed it to new cases over total tests per day. Why does that matter? Um, which is also deceptive. So it's, why is it deceptive? So let's say I give you 100 apples, right? And 50 are rotten. And I ask you what percent are rotten? You'd say 50%. If I then tell you that 30 were rotten yesterday, 10 were rotten two days before that, um, five are almost completely rotten, but not quite, and I've cut the other 50 non-rotten apples and do hundreds of tiny little pieces, what percent of the apples are rotten? It's still 50%. Yeah, it's still 50%, but it's, it's about 50. Right. Yeah. You've just made it extremely complicated and convoluted. So what we used to do for percent positivity, which was one of the benchmarks that each county had to meet in order to qualify to reopen, it had to be below 10% and decreasing for two weeks. So normally when people think of a percent, they think the number of positive people divided by the number of people tested. That seems honest and fair. Um, they changed it to number of new cases per day over the number of negative tests per day. Mm -hmm. So if you decide you want to get tested five times today, you count five times towards a negative if those are all your results. And that's Whereas the way it still I is? positive, I count once. Is that still true? Yes. All right, last thing. still how they're referring to positivity. Here's what they say. Forget about the numbers. We're doing great on the numbers. We don't care what she says. But I'll tell you what we do care about. Her. 
Uh, she didn't like how this was going and she handled it badly. Uh, here's the response from the Florida Department of Health. Rebecca Jones exhibited a repeated course of insubordination during her time with the department, including her unilateral decisions to modify the department's COVID-19 uh, dashboard without input or approval from the epi, uh, epidemiological team or her supervisors. The blatant disrespect for the professionals who were working around the clock to provide important information for the COVID-19 website was harmful to the team. Having someone disruptive can't be tolerated during this public pandemic, led the department to determine that it was best to terminate her employment. In other words, you got a tood problem. You didn't like what they told you, so you handled it badly. Do you accept the criticism? Somewhat, yes. If refusing to mislead the public during a health crisis is insubordination, then I will wear that badge with honor. The way yes. they wanted to do it and the and way you wanted to do it aren't equal in the eyes of experts? No. Uh, none of the methodology that I was being asked to apply, which really wasn't based on any statistically sound methodology at all, was not science. They were asking me to manually go in and basically type yes or no, this county meets it, with any real risk assessment as to whether or not that county should. There may be plenty of rural counties that were perfectly safe to reopen that we will now never know because the numbers were manipulated. What's your next move? Well, I, as you've heard, I'm out of the job. <laughs> so I'd like to get back to doing what I love. Would you want to go back there? Helping people. Uh, no, not unless there's a, a change in leadership, no. <laughs> So you're going to figure out what you do next. Rebecca Jones, I know a lot of this stuff is convoluted. I know this has been uh, very hard for you to be in the spotlight. And there are a lot of big accusations coming your way. So thank you for taking this opportunity to help us understand what this is about and what it means for the people of Florida. Thank you. Thank you for letting me talk. All right. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome back to a bonus hour of prime time. We're back to more BS from the president today that he has powers that are not granted to him by the Constitution. And last month, he declared total authority to liberate states. That was not true. And neither is this. Some governors have deemed liquor stores and abortion clinics as essential, but have left out churches and other houses of worship. It's not right. So I'm correcting this injustice and calling houses of worship essential. I call upon governors to allow our churches and places of worship to open right now. If they don't do it, I will override the governors. Does he have the right? No, legal experts will tell you. But let's not spend that much time on that. Is it right? Now remember, this is the same president who wanted churches packed by Easter Sunday. Tens of thousands have died since then. And by the way, a lot of people have gotten sick and worse from being in places of worship that weren't following enough rules to keep them safe. But he has a whole lot of faith that this is all going to disappear. So let's bring in Caitlin Collins at the White House. Caitlin, what is the explanation that removes the stink of playing religion in politics? Well, they haven't really explained even what the president's authority that he says he has to override states and governors if they don't 
open up these places of religion that they talked about. And this was a surprise kind of today now that the president is deeming them essential because the White House had been going back and forth with the CDC over the guidance for these places of worship, worship to reopen, what it was going to look like. The White House thought what the CDC wanted to put out was too strict and that basically churches and other places would not be able to abide by those guidances, the guidance that they had put out. And so they didn't want them to do it. And then there was a question of would they put out guidance at all. And then we came to where we are today where the president said he wanted to deem them essential services, therefore they can open, he believes. And so the question really is, you know, what are governors going to do? Because you heard some governors, like the governor of New Hampshire today, say, no, it's actually our decision. We will make that call when we feel it's right, and it's going to be based on what the data is looking like on the number of cases that we have. Mm. So I want to play this um, uh, question about uh, the authority. What is the basis for the authority? That was then asked to the press secretary, uh, Kayleigh McEnany, after the president refused to take questions. Here's what she said. What specific provision of federal law allows the president to override a governor's The president decision? will strongly encourage every governor to allow their churches to reopen. And boy, it's interesting to be in a room that desperately wants to seem to see these churches and houses of worship stay no, closed. The president said yes, that he yes. has that. Really, I object to that. I mean, I go to church. I'm dying to go back to church. The question that we're asking you and would like to have asked the president and Dr. Burks is, is it safe? And if it's not safe, is the president trying to encourage that? Or does the president agree with Dr. Burks that people should wait? Jeff, it is safe to reopen your churches if you do so in accordance with the guidelines. That's what every governor's doing. But how did the cheap shot play? Uh, not really well. I think that was the question there. As you saw, Kaylee McEnany and Dr. Burks had been backing off the president being pretty strong when he said, you know, they can call if they want to, but it doesn't make a difference what these governors say because we want these churches and these other places of worship to be reopened. And of course, the concern is, is it okay? And you saw Dr. Burks, she said, you know, if you feel like you've got a certain outbreak of COVID cases, then maybe wait another week. And then you saw the press secretary there saying, if they feel like they can do it in accordance with the guidance, if they feel like they can, she was saying it was a hypothetical if it was going to be pitting governors against the president. But the president did not seem to be making that case at all, Chris, when he was out there. He was pretty ad adamant about this. And what's you know notable about the background of this is people are debating, does he have the authority to do this if some places don't open up their churches? The Justice Department, if you've noticed and been paying attention to them in the last few weeks, has been talking a lot about churches and other places that have been pushing back on these stay-at-home orders. And they've come out in defense of them. So it will be a question as to whether or not they are going to try to defend the president if it does come down to where he is trying to overrule a governor. For a, for a president, you, you don't assume power in a vacuum. So they'd have to show a specific authority for something like this. And the only law in the books uh, about it that is relevant is going to be law that says you got to treat everyone the same way. If you don't treat uh, churches or places of worship the way you do other businesses, you've got a problem. Uh, and it was interesting, Kaylee McEnany said, as long as they follow the CDC guidelines, they should reopen. Well, that's true about everything, right, Caitlin? So it really does raise the question of why the president is making this an issue when all he's asking for is what the governors are doing already. Um, where do you think this goes in terms of his following through on his threat? 
It's hard to say. I mean, it was just not that long ago where the president was saying he believed as president he had total authority over governors, mm. something that really no one agreed with. Even the president's allies, his supporters, big constitutionalists do not agree that the president has authority over that situation. So it could just be this threat where the president wants to make this play. He had been looking at the numbers that he's gotten with his poll numbers with evangelicals and what's happening with that. They've noticed that evangelicals have been pushing back against some of these stay-at-home orders that they thought were too strict. And so this could be a way to appeal to those voters because that has certainly been something that is at the top of the president's list. He has these weekly meetings with his political advisors. They are looking at the poll numbers pretty closely. So certainly this could be a factor in that announcement that came out today. It certainly could. Caitlin Collins, I thank you every time I see you. But on a Friday night, even though you technically have nowhere to go, really, that would be any fun. <laughs> I want to thank you for true. being with us tonight. Caitlin, thank you. Of course. All right. Cases are climbing again in many states. By the way, you know what? That's not fair. Cases are climbing in many states. That's all we have to say. We don't have to say again, because we don't know whether or not they're, they're climbing more because of reopening or they're climbing at all because of reopening, because they were going to be climbing anyway. And that's what made reopening so dicey. So I don't have to say climbing again. They were going to climb and they reopened anyway, which makes how you reopen so important. All right. Now, now that that's where we are, right, in terms of our mindset. How can there be no national plan to do exactly that, open safely? Everyone is itching to get out again, especially Memorial Day weekend. Kyung La is going to show us why this weekend, especially, we have to be very careful. Well, we're about to start a very important weekend. The first summer holiday weekend, a major test of America versus the virus as millions head outside. It's nice to have the option to at least come to the beach and just have some fun with friends for once. I think it will be very busy and I'm confident that people are gonna wanna do this in a safe manner because we know if things don't work, we may go back to a lockdown situation and I don't think anybody wants that. Beaches up and down the East Coast will be open with enforced social distancing. If we don't get voluntary compliance to a beach ambassador, uh, then they'll ask for law enforcement to come and actually enforce the governor's executive orders for the distancing. But different rules depending on where you are. So obviously it's advisable at all times, but I don't think it's realistic or practical to ask people to uh, go to the beach and, and wear a mask. As states limit the number of people on beaches, they're now deciding whether to open churches this weekend after this. I call upon governors to allow our churches and places of worship to open right now. Rhode Island's governor bluntly said, that's not gonna happen. Honestly, that would be reckless. They have a lot of work to do. While America dives ahead, data shows this week, more states are heading in the wrong direction. In the weekly average of new cases, nine states here in green are down. 24 states are steady. And 17 states in red and orange are up. 25,000 new cases in the U.S. added just yesterday. Among the steepest climbs, Arkansas. The state saw a 65% increase in the rate of new cases compared to a week ago. The state still opening water parks and pools today with restrictions. In nearby Alabama, crowds packed beaches today, despite warnings that more cases would stress an already stretched Montgomery hospital system, where ICU beds run short. 
I'm quite worried with the Memorial Day weekend coming and the restrictions loosening that this is going to go like a prairie fire. Again, it's been smoldering, we've had a lid on it, but it is now really having the potential to get out of control. Dr. Deborah Burke says the White House Coronavirus Task Force is still trying to understand why some cities continue to see spikes despite social distancing orders. Even though Washington has remained closed, LA has remained closed, Chicago has remained closed, we still see these ongoing cases. Kyung Law, CNN, Los Angeles. That's the point, is that even places that are closed, you still have increasing cases. So what happens when you reopen? You can't expect less cases, right? That's why how we do it and trying to be safe, especially going into this weekend when we are remembering how many gave the ultimate sacrifice to this country. What are we willing to sacrifice right now? Now, we don't have to guess what's going to happen if houses of worship, uh, if their congregations do too much congregating and don't follow the right types of rules, right? No vaccines in sight. We don't have a cure. We need to know the science that comes with this test of a lot more than faith. So let's bring in a professor, okay, Aaron Bromage, to take us through why we have to be careful and what happens if we're not. Next. President Trump says churches should be deemed essential. He's demanding that states allow them to reopen, pretending to order just that. Let's set aside for a moment that he doesn't have the power to proclaim this. And let's just focus on the reality that nobody's going out of their way to be unfair to churches. And he knows it. And you know why he's picking this. It's a distraction and it's a point of division. And that's what he is about. He should put that same energy into coming up with a plan about how to reopen safely so we don't have these questions and confusion. But here's a fact. Many churches will be reopening this weekend long before he said a damn thing. So what do you need to know if you go? Back with us tonight is Professor Aaron Bromage. It's good to have you. Um, look, the CDC, not just do places of worship, and look, you know, it's a crimp in everybody who's a member of the faithful in terms of what your routine is and how you practice your faith and what the ritual is. It's not easy on anybody who practices their faith that way. But the CDC had specific concerns about this because they'd seen bad outcomes in congregations and places of worship. What makes these places and these occasions so particularly susceptible to spread? Well, Chris, thanks for having me on the show. Um, in regards to churches, it just gets back to what we discussed last time. Indoor environment with lots of people, usually poor airflow, and in many churches, lots of singing. And in doing that, you're just setting yourself up for the, the most perfect environment for this virus to find a fresh, fresh set of new lungs. Um, now, I've had a lot of people say that my sing singing is sickening, uh, but why uh, in this particular context does it matter if people are singing a lot? Because when you're singing, you're projecting a, a lot more noise and air out of your mouth. And when you're doing that, that's putting more of those respiratory droplets that we've heard about out into the air. And if you're infected and you have that virus, if you have this infection, you are then going to project those droplets into the air and put the virus there for other people to breathe in. One more layer on this, because we had like, you know, for example, 
uh, not only have we had a lot of other preachers say, um, oh, you know, God will protect us. We're going to be okay. Uh, and that turned out not to be the case because uh, God doesn't reward people for making bad choices very often. And we had an Ohio lawmaker say, I'm not going to wear a mask because I was made in the image of Jesus and he doesn't have a mask on. What have we seen in terms of results of people getting sick by not following CDC guidelines and places of worship? Well, because the guidelines really haven't been there up until now, we don't have any data to say that here. Um, but what I do know is just today, I spent an hour on a Zoom call with about 80 faith leaders from Boston that are all very concerned about opening their services back up. Um, I was really honored to have the opportunity to be able to talk to them, um, discuss the risks, hear their concerns, and then also start to discuss ways that they may be able to uh, reduce risks for their congregants. Six feet apart and you're good? Or is it more complicated than that? It's much more complicated than that. Um, six feet indoors when you're there for a lot of time is not enough. You add singing into this, it is not enough. You add age and risk factors into this, it is not enough. Restaurants opening up, safe to go? And if so, how? Safe to go if they've developed a good plan. And that's the, the biggest thing with what we're looking at with reopening is not having a plan. Restaurants with a good plan, especially when you can dine al fresco, when you can have that space outside, you can have a gentle breeze there diluting any virus away from you, is a great plan and has reduced the risk of infection dramatically. If we're looking at indoors in an enclosed environment with poor ventilation, you're, you're increasing risk. So outdoors is the way to go if you're going to go at all. Fair point? Yeah, fair um, point. And for obvious uh, point uh, of view is that because there's just more space for things to disperse and more opportunity for people to have distance. Yeah, and no opportunity to accumulate. Uh, accumulating virus is a problem. So if it's being dispersed, it doesn't build up in that environment. So outdoors is always best. And it's not just a little bit best, it's a lot best. Um, big, biggest concern for you going into this holy, this, uh, this Memorial Day? Um, large gatherings of people that have a ambivalence for the risks associated with this. This is not about you and your risk. This is about the community in general. Appreciate that everyone doesn't have your good health and for, uh, good fortune and understand that your actions, your decisions affect everybody. Mm. And you know, he's not a scientist, but I did have a holy man say to me uh, when, when I went to mass the last time before we stopped going, he said, hey, you don't need me to tell you to be your brother's keeper. <laughs> that is the root of faith. So if you're someone who wants to go to a place of worship, you more than anyone else should know that you should do what you can to keep other people safe. You are your brother's keeper. Professor, Thank you very much. The best to your family uh, for good health and good fun while you remember the solemn occasion in this country of Memorial Day. I appreciate those thoughts. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You too, sir. Hospitals across America overrun with cases. I want you to listen, though, to what a frontline hero of the fight just told Congress about her hospital in the early days of this outbreak and what they didn't know for more than a week. You're going to have to hear this next.
We try to get you the best data here so you can make the most informed choices. And on that level, there's a new model by a team at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the University of Pennsylvania, and it predicts coronavirus spikes in parts of the South. Now, that warning comes as a doctor from Georgia working at one of the hardest hit hospitals there testified before Congress that COVID-19 spread quietly for 10 days before any of the staff knew about it. That doctor, Shanti Akers, joins us now on primetime. Doctor, thank you. Thank you. Prove it. How do you know that it was spreading before you knew? Well, we really had no indication it was in our community at all. At that point, we had heard about cases in other parts of the country, and we were continuing with business as usual in the beginning of March. And it was actually a physician in Atlanta who had called us saying that there was a patient who had recently been transferred from our hospital to Atlanta, and that patient ended up being positive. And so that was the first communication we had um, that the cases were even in our town. Do you believe it's because you weren't told or we weren't just able to assess? I don't think at that time we really had any indication that it had traveled that far. You know, we knew about cases in Seattle and New York, but there really was no way to know where the spread had been at that point. And, And really, we had so little information in the beginning in terms of you know, how the patients would present, what the incubation time was for the illness. So I really just don't think we had enough information. Time is a killer uh, in a circumstance like this. And what did it mean in terms of the conditions you were forced to face? So at that time, because of all the 10 days that we had had of the patient being exposed, you know, exposing themselves to staff, there are things that we know increase risk of things like aerosolization, which we know allows particles to stay in the air much longer. And so this patient may have had treatments that had increased risk of exposure to staff members, and that allowed that potentially to progress even further. There had initially been a a funeral event that had been a large congregation of people that um, we believe that a lot of the initial cases came from. So that compounded with staff being exposed for a period of time meant that there were a number of people potentially spreading this virus over a period of days. You know, uh, in March, we spoke to a young woman named Carly Rice. She's a critical care nurse at your hospital. And uh, I was talking to her about what it was like uh, to deal with it personally, the risk uh, and the requirements that were put on you guys. And she really moved us. Here's a sample to remind the audience. I just get so emotional about what we have to see. Like, With me being so young, I didn't ever think that I would see this amount of deaths all at one time. I mean, you think about it throughout your nursing career, you're going to see a bunch of them. But all at one time is, I don't know how to explain the feelings that I have for it. Like it's, sorry. Some of the emotional toll you can't prepare for. Um, But because of the delay in understanding what you were up against, it meant that you didn't have the PPE, you didn't have the planning, you didn't have the protocols in place. Is that true? Yes, I I think our hospital went to great lengths as soon as we were notified to have emergency meetings and really make sure that we had a robust PPE supply. You know, we were very fortunate with our administration that had the foresight to plan back in January when they heard of cases outside the country that they started accumulating large quantities as much as we were able of PPE. So our staff, fortunately, has been very well protected. That being said, there's still very limited knowledge about the treatments for coronavirus at that time. 
So initially when people are coming in, we were just so overwhelmed both by the volume of cases, but also by how sick these patients were. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, even if you know everything that you possibly can do, just when you have a ER inundated, an ICU inundated, and you have beds filling up, it's really hard excuse me, it's really hard to provide the best quality care for those patients when you know that, you know, just as the, as the day progresses, just more and more coming in and you just can't keep up. One of the frustrations in covering this story is that we all gladly heroize uh, what you and your colleagues are doing on the front lines. Um, we analogize so much of your duty right now um, to being frontline, first responder, wartime, you know, our warriors on the battle line. The frustration is that it's hard to avoid thinking that we didn't kind of hang you out to dry, uh, that we put you up against a set of challenges that were unreasonable uh, to think that you guys would be able to take on and that it's still kind of that way, that we still don't have the urgency and desperation for planning and preparation that you guys have to exercise every day in dealing with the actual problem. I know part of that is what drove you to testify. What do you hope comes out of it? Well, I'm hoping a few things come out of it, one of which is people understand how a virus can affect a rural community. I know we've heard a lot about New York City cases and cases in other major metropolitan areas, but the reality is is that this virus does not discriminate. This virus will travel as people travel. And so you could be a town as small as ours or you know, a much larger area, and infectious disease does not change depending on location. Um, and so I think I'm really hoping that people take some um, of the advice that's out there in terms of proper protections. And I think also people need to understand that there's limitations to what a hospital system can provide. And when we're overwhelmed, it's not that, you know, people aren't working around the clock to do everything that they can. It's just that there's just only so much you can do when you're overwhelmed. Right. And do you think that the desperation and the urgency that you see in the hospital is matched by leadership outside So that's a hard question to answer because I think that that depends on so many different things. You know, we were fortunate to have a mayor who very much took this seriously. We chose to shelter in place earlier um, in our state. And then additionally, when we did, you know, reach out to the governor for help um, through Governor Kemp and we received a lot of support through the National Guard. Um, you know, I think outside of that, it's there's a lot of nuance to what's going on at a federal level. And I'm sure there are people who are much smarter than me that are working on all those different aspects. But I, I do know that from a, a local standpoint, we had an enormous amount of support from our community, from our um, mayor, and then also from our hospital administration. What did you get in terms of feedback from Congress? Um, it seemed like they were very much concerned about all the different things that the various healthcare workers and essential workers who had testified um, all the various issues that we had all brought up. It seems like there's definitely a lot of different ways to tackle the problem. And I'm hopeful that they responded to all of our feedback and commentary with plans to go forward to increase things like PPE and to allow essential workers, not just healthcare workers, but all essential workers to go back to work safely. I had one clinician say to me, you know, Usually the healthcare community works on a national level. Uh, Everybody has their own local concerns, but we kind of information share and we pass along protocols and things spread throughout systems and understandings. And they used as an example, sepsis, that when you started understanding about hospital-borne infections and that you had to change the socks and wash your hands and there were these simple things to do that you could get ahead of it, it spread all across the country. 
And yet with this pandemic, it seems like everybody has to figure it out on their own by state, uh, by county and by community. Has that been your experience? I think that was true mostly just because we didn't know, like I said before, what we were really encountering when our cases initially started. You know, because we're a rural community-based hospital, we don't have a larger academic center from which to draw a lot of resources or to have a lot of experts in different fields that might help give us that kind of guidance. And so we were really reliant on colleagues from Italy and China to really provide that information. And I think even there may be other you know, agencies around the country that were similar trying to get a grasp. A grasp of what the situation was. You know, I'm looking at the timing here. Um, you know, obviously, you saw what had happened out west, and obviously, then it started to hit the big travel hubs. What do you think it was that kept it from being obvious everywhere that you saw cases anything like it? What were the factors that went into making it difficult to know what you were dealing with? Um, I think one factor largely was that. You know, we were in the middle of coming out of the winter season. Respiratory illnesses often look a lot like each other. You know, so when you have a patient come in with fever, cough, shortness of breath, well, that could be flu or any other viral illness as well. Um, additionally, I don't think we really knew at that point what the best way to risk stratify these patients were and how to assess who would be higher risk, lower risk, um, things like that. So that lack of just information, basic information about how the disease was transmitted, is it airborne, is it not? I think all those things contributed to us really not knowing. But also, I think when you live in a community like ours and you have a lot of patients that are sick from a number of other things, you know, it's an infection that traveled from China down to rural Southwest Georgia is not usually at the forefront of your mind. Mm. Yeah, China bounced to Europe and, you know, came through so many different points of entry and you're in a complex uh, community, maybe a small place, but has a lot of problems, a lot of poverty. Um, a minority community that's exposed to a lot of systemic issues uh, of poverty and underlying illnesses and food shortages and malnutrition uh, and not getting uh, enough health care as easily as they might. And that all contributes to it. Have you ever seen anything else that is as beguiling as this virus is, these little tumors that break out and then kids start getting weird things. And you learn that you have to change your protocols about people being on their back because of what it does to lungs. It just seems like it keeps throwing curveballs at us. Yes, for sure. I think that's been the fundamental problem with this whole illness is every single day there's something new. You know, in the beginning, we heard that largely children were not impacted by this illness. It was largely elderly patients and people with a lot of underlying medical components. But, you know, our experience had been that we had some young patients that had no underlying medical history that got sick. And so every day we were all really struggling to try to keep up with all the different pieces of information coming up from so many different sources, because it just seemed like depending on where the outbreaks were, you may see a completely different constellation of symptoms than what you might elsewhere. And even when I've compared after the fact with colleagues who are in different parts of the country, it seems like, you know, things that I would notice weren't necessarily true in other hospitals or in other regions. So weird. It really is just so weird. It'll be such an interesting story, I guess, for the next generation uh, to figure out what we went through here and what we learned about the virus and about ourselves. Dr. Shanti Akers, thank you very much. The best to you and your family for good health. Thank you. All right. The VA system. Oh, we love the troops. Oh, we all care so much. Why am I saying it facetiously, sarcastically? Because I just don't see the follow through. Deaths in the VA system now top a thousand. And we know that's just part of how this tragedy is claiming our veterans. 
and especially this weekend into Memorial Day, that, you know, that any component of the people that we have to honor the sacrifice, that they died this way, when we could have stopped it, we have a duty to protect everyone who once protected us especially. Let's get after it with Senator and Iraq War veteran and Purple Heart recipient, Tammy Duckworth, next. Weekend, all about remembering the fallen, those who gave their lives defending this nation, true sacrifice, literally, uh, what the word means is the act of making something holy. So what is the best way to remember them? and also support other military members during this time. Let's bring in Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Iraq War veteran, Purple Heart recipient. Um, always good to have you on prime time. And uh, every time I see you, and certainly this time, thank you for your service to the country. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And it's good to see you looking healthy again. I'm one of the lucky ones. So um, are we right to be as perturbed uh, as many of us are, about not hearing from Secretary Wilkie, not getting a straight count on veterans, um, you know, this idea that they're dying in other systems and not being counted and some states aren't counting them at all. Are we right to be upset or is there some excuse to be had? Well, we are right to be upset um, and we should be concerned because veterans are especially vulnerable to COVID-19, especially those who are exposed to burn pits. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And don't forget that our Vietnam veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange also have reduced lung functions and other co uh, comorbidity, you know, other illnesses that make them even more vulnerable to this pandemic. And a lot of them are old, so we know they're vulnerable. The question is, did the system make them more vulnerable? Do you have questions for the secretary? I do have questions for the secretary. I want to make sure that all the VA facilities are up and able to take care of all of our veterans. But we should be tracking, we should be testing, uh, you know, all of our veterans. Um, and we need to make sure that we know who is actually uh, uh, either falling ill or dying as a result of COVID-19. Now, I will tell you, I've called all of the VA hospitals in Illinois and have great relationships with all of those um, hospital directors. But unfortunately, within the VA, the problem that we have is when you've gone to one VA, you've gone to one VA. They're not consistent across the country, and we need to do a better job of that. And that's where Secretary Wilkie can certainly step forward and provide some leadership but he's been awfully quiet during this whole pandemic, unfortunately. What do you make of that? Well, you know, I just don't know how, if whether he truly has a handle on things. You know, I, for example, know that Heinz VA has taken care of all of their own folks and has actually taken on some um, cases from the civilian population as well. That's my VA hospital in the Chicagoland area. But I worry that, you know, there are veterans who are in um, uh, nursing homes who are, uh, falling ill and dying and not being counted as veterans who are passing away. And some of them, uh, as you mentioned, are more vulnerable because of Agent Orange, they're older. Uh, and again, don't forget the Iraq and Afghanistan um, veterans, they have problems with respiratory illnesses already. Mm. And look, I mean, for me, it's just everybody's so quick to say how much we love you guys and how you're the best of us and we owe you so much. And it seems like we always fall down on that commitment. Uh, and it's, it's very frustrating. Let me ask you something else um, while I have you. One political question. Uh, so uh, Biden goes on with Charlemagne the God, in my opinion, maybe one of the best names in entertainment. And uh, Charlemagne <laughs> is having a serious conversation with him. And Biden says, listen, you don't know who to vote for between me and Trump. You're not black. Now, the VP says today I was being too cavalier. I shouldn't have been a wise guy. I shouldn't have spoken that way. How big a deal? Well, look, I think the big deal is Donald Trump in the White House, right? And so let's 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 not um, have false equivalencies right here. Uh, 
if there's a person that I'm going to trust who's been there for uh, persons of color, for minorities, for women, it's been Joe Biden his entire career. I would rather trust Joe Biden to represent true diversity in the White House than I would Donald Trump any day of the week. Taylor, uh, the response to the minority community, uh, some of whom believe, you know, Democrats take our votes for granted. Uh, and there's a nonchalance in the way he just spoke about us. Um, some of them feel that bespeaks that nonchalance, that they take us for granted. And why should they just keep voting for Democrats if there's nothing in it for them, specifically for them? Well, let me tell you what Democrats are doing. Democrats, for example, I started the environmental justice coalition in the Senate to make sure that our black and brown communities, which are where we tend to dump our toxic chemicals, uh, are the ones that are going to be best uh, served. Uh, and in fact, in Illinois, for example, African-Americans are 15% of our population, yet over 40% of our COVID-19 positive cases because of health inequities. And we're working very hard to address those issues. It is Democrats who are out there making sure that we send uh, money to all of our hospitals, including those that are on the front lines. It is Democrats who stand up time and time again to fight for working families. To you know, we're the ones who are pushing the Heroes Act that will provide assistance for people who are essential workers, not just the doctors and nurses who are heroic, but the janitors who are cleaning our hospitals, uh, the folks who are working on the front lines in our you know at McDonald's supplying my daughter with uh, with McNuggets every single day, and those who are working in our grocery stores who are never signed up to be on the front lines of a global pandemic, but here they are. It is Democrats who are work, watching out for working families all across this country, and we are the truly the party of diversity. And so if you're going to compare, um, go right on ahead. You'll see that the Democrats and Joe Biden, as, as the person who's going to lead us into victory in November and into the White House, will be the party that will be watching out for hardworking Americans, no matter what your background, and that we do care about diversity, uh, and we always have. If you care so much, Senator Duckworth, would you consider being VP with Joe Biden on the ticket? Well, I've never said no when my country has called me to serve, I, but my focus really is on getting Joe Biden into the White House, and whatever that takes. Uh, I'm willing to do that because our country is in trouble right now with Donald Trump in the White House. He certainly um, has led us down a path that uh, has left us a nation in crisis. And we desperately need Joe Biden, his leadership, all his years and decades of experience to lead us out and back into uh, the global environment where we can lead the world again and we can take care of Americans and taking care of our hardworking families. So whatever I can do to get Joe Biden into the White House, I'm going to do it. Well, you know, Dick Durbin said your name is in the mix. And if they're looking for a warrior, I don't know who comes before you. Senator Tammy Duckworth, the best to you and your family. Thank you for your service. Thank you for making time for us tonight. Thank you for having me on and happy Memorial Day. Thank you. Be well, Senator. Closing argument next. I argue it's fitting that the weekend that signals our reopening falls on Memorial Day. The time we remember those who made a sacrifice because we seem to have forgotten the message of sacrifice. I use the word on purpose, sacrifice. They died in devotion to something bigger than themselves, the land of the free. We are their living legacy. We are living their legacy. Our respect is supposed to connect us as the fallen were connected by common cause, together as ever as one. And yet we have a president weaponizing going to church to divide us. Isn't faith about unity, love, mercy? You're either on the side of the liquor stores or the Lord coming from Trump. Come on. I'm not surprised he missed the point. The faithful should be the first to be our best this weekend, to be the most conscientious because we are taught you are your brother's keeper, to love one another as Jesus loved us. 
Pandering to the religious on the basis of division in the interest of political advantage is disgusting, especially as we enter Memorial Day. Let's be honest. Look at our connection, such as it is. It's nothing close to what would honor the price paid by others for what we're taking for granted. In the face of desperate times, a fight against a virus that's rightly likened to a war, how does our commitment to the supposed desperation size up to what we memorialize this weekend? We heroize our healthcare workers, but why should they have to overcome challenges that our leaders, the most mighty government on earth, has done so little to knock down or even prepare for or even plan to prepare for? Would we have willingly sent our warriors in wars past into situations with poor or no equipment, incomplete intel, little urgency to improve our understanding, telling the different branches of service to figure it out for yourselves like we do the states? Would we spend more time denying there was a war than fighting it? Our president now won't wear a mask, but he'll take a pill to which he ascribes features that are the stuff of pure fantasy. You remember any other wartime leader doing that? Everyone wants to fight this enemy to keep our families and ourselves safe from harm. And everybody wants to reopen because that's how we survive. And that is our victory. We need to honor this Memorial Day by being respectful of the true sacrifice of real warriors. At a time that we are lying about the real need for being warriors today. Thank you for watching the town hall, CNN town hall, coronavirus, facts and fears next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.